Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're joined by Colin Hardy. How you doing, Colin? Hey, Ed. So a couple of weeks back now, actually, uh, a new malware threat occurred named WannaCry and it got lots of press, particularly in the UK, due to how it affected the NHS. Uh, me being a geek, I was very interested in how this malware was composed and like what was you know what the sum of its parts were. And so I took to the YouTubes and took some blog posts and stuff. And actually, one of the YouTube videos that I found that I found really valuable was actually from you, Colin. And it kind of it very surgically almost dissected you know how to deal with kind of analysing this malware and check for behavioural analysis on of it. And yeah, I thought it'd be really interesting to maybe try and get you on the show and you know we discuss the field that you're in, cybersecurity. That's really kind. Yeah, excellent. Uh, definitely the WannaCry situation was uh, something which which uh, kind of focused everybody's minds um, in terms of cybersecurity and how important it is in organizations and also uh, from from a, 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 um, a kind of end user standpoint as well. So uh, definitely a fun time to be in the industry, put it that way, but obviously not so fun if you're on the receiving end of malware like that it can be pretty uh, chaotic at times but uh, yeah thank you uh, I think the video you watch would have been me analyzing one of the samples probably having had the sample in my hands for about 10 minutes um, so uh, it's probably not the most professional of videos I've ever put together but I, I appreciate the plug nonetheless so yeah good I think it was great how you broke down the sample and even calling it a sample shows how different the world you live in is. Um, yeah I also think you know you say that you know the WannaCry crisis did highlight the value of what you do um, and it's unfortunate that it takes a big crisis like that to actually appreciate it. Obviously, day to day, people don't really realize how much work actually goes into, you know, the protection that, you know, that is required. We're really interested, actually, uh, to know, you know, how and what got you interested in cybersecurity. Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, I, I've always been had a, quite a kind of technical background uh, from growing up with computers. And just I think I was probably a bit of a pain as a child. So my mum and dad gave me a computer to go and play in the corner with uh, and kind of break and put back together, etc. Um, so that was fun. Um, and then always messed around with a little bit of coding as well. Uh, and I know plenty of people in cybersecurity that, that have never coded anything in their lives and they're, you know, exceptional people at what they do. Uh, so it's definitely not a kind of prerequisite. But my kind of avenue in was, uh, you know, writing some Excel macros. I was always that guy at school or that guy at work who was good at writing macros, that kind of thing. Um, and that was quite useful, actually, uh, maybe sort of 10 or 15 years later when I did break into cybersecurity because a lot of the malware is actually uh, delivered via uh, malicious macros within Word docs or Excel. Excel docs so be able to being able to kind of reverse engineer that kind of code is is actually pretty useful so that kind of stood me in good stead a little bit but I think um you know, always having that kind of computer science um and coding interest uh, and it, w- it was definitely one arm uh, and the second was I, I grew up in a household which was very uh, police orientated I've got a family full of police uh, my dad was a hard-nosed policeman from Liverpool and, and I, I grew up with stories of criminals and the underworld and all the rest of it so having that kind of investigative mindset as well and, and being interested in in that side of the world um, was, was something which has always appealed to me and the fusion I guess between uh, computer science and investigative work uh, would be the area of, of cyber security so it was a, a very natural fit for me to get into 
Yeah, absolutely. If you're really interested in like the investigative and the code side, this really does kind of blend those two two together. Mm, absolutely. And it's massive as well, you know, in terms of... Uh, um, you know, the organizations that are out there at the minute um, really investing in cybersecurity, the areas you can get into are so diverse. Uh, I mean, what I do, I think, is probably one of the most technical roles within cybersecurity, um, which relates specifically to malware. But, you know, there's a whole host of other roles and responsibilities around, you know, how you manage your third parties and, and the kind of risk elements and uh, the more uh, maybe the less sexy side of cybersecurity, which is so important to a successful um, overall uh, enterprise but um, but yeah there's some you know some super fun roles out there and like I say you know with the with, with the uh, the wanna crime hour situation uh, it only kind of uh, does the industry um, some favors really in putting it on the map and, and hopefully getting those the, the the IT security teams who have been struggling away asking for investment over the years maybe maybe all of a sudden they might get those uh, um, you know the financials that they need to keep in, to, to keep delivering what they need to so is like you need something bad like this to happen for people to actually realize that this you know this is a threat and it could actually happen to us yeah unfortunately i think i think you're right it does i mean you only have to look at the like i mean we've had some uh pretty um crazy situations in the uk you look at uh, the likes of the talk talk data breach from a, a couple of years ago and that that really hit the public hard because there was so much personal information which was um obtained by the hackers and then all of a sudden the recruitment and and, and the investment which talk talk put into that area of their business was um you know great to see but maybe yeah hopefully if if they'd done that sooner rather than later that would have uh, been a different story altogether so It'll be really great actually to know what actually then is cybersecurity. So I think um, it encompasses an awful lot of um, a lot of strands of of IT security uh, and also about how you manage risk and threat intelligence. Um, so I think there's uh, in the area where I work. Uh, we have uh, kind of chevrons, if you like, that we operate to. So we have kind of like the preparation and identification phase of cybersecurity. So how do you identify a threat and then how do you prepare for it? And there's, there's uh, you know, uh, departments full of people within organizations that are just focused on cyber threat intelligence, which is a, a super interesting part of the of the field itself. Um, and then kind of going through the chain or uh, people call it a kill chain, if you like, but going through the phases of uh, once you've prepared for a threat and I've been able to identify it with all these teams of people making sense of information on the Internet. Um, how do you then respond to um, you know, situations when they when they occur? So there's a, re- a big response arm as well. So uh, people who are geared up to deal with incidents that um, on your perimeter, for example, and that could be like a DDoS attack. It could be a malware attack. It could be someone trying to exploit a vulnerability um, or a combination of uh, of the above as well. Um, and so there's a kind of a big response arm to, to the cybersecurity world as well. Um, and they're people that are really on the front line that really have to kind of contain an issue and eradicate it really quickly. Uh, and then there's the kind of mopping up as well in the background. So there's the recovery side of things. How do you um, you know deal with a uh, an incident after aftermath, if you like? How do you tidy up off the back of it? And then um, how, the, the whole lessons learned piece as well, and and kind of prevent it from happening. Uh, and I think most organisations have that kind of structure uh, if they've invested well within cybersecurity. They they have those uh, those kind of elements segregated into specific roles with various teams of people. And the smaller organisations and the SMEs of the world probably have maybe one or two people doing an awful lot of that themselves. Um, but definitely with that that kind of mindset. 
Um, and then so, you know, most people focus on their own uh, bubble and their own world and their own organization. Um, and a, a huge arm of it as well uh, within cybersecurity is actually looking at the people that you do business business with as well to make sure that their standards and their um, hardware maybe and their software that they use and how they interact with your business is uh, not going to put you at risk as well. And that's super important. So, um, you know, there's so many different arms to it, um, you know, to kind of encompass it into a, into a few words. It's quite difficult. It's just a massive, um, a massive shift from the likes of the the um, IT securities of the world how it used to be into now what is uh, fully fledged cybersecurity teams that are you know operating around the globe. So you know, uh, in fact, if you look at the the WannaCry situation recently, um, how it propagated around the internet so quickly was probably to do with how businesses were connected together in the background. Uh, you know, if you infect one business. Well, how all of a sudden did the NHS become infected when, you know, Telefonica and other businesses in, in Europe were affected? Well, the chances are that there are interconnecting devices along the way of, of businesses which, you know, are connected and are sharing data and have, uh, you know, applications which feed other other systems. And along the way, the, the networks are actually joined up uh, when, you, when you look at it from a map perspective. So, yeah, really interesting. Uh, yeah, you've just mentioned, you know, key terms such as like DDoS attack and malware. Um, and it'd be really interesting to maybe get like your succinct definitions for these, these, these sayings. What actually then is malware? Mm. Well, there's a few different types of malware. Um, it, it stands for malicious software. Um, and it's a fairly generic term for, for anything, which any piece of software which is malicious or, or suspicious in nature. Um, there's a few different kind of types, I guess. Um, and there's a few different terms which, which do get kind of bandied around a little bit um, and maybe used in, in, in different contexts. People will, will probably be familiar with the term virus. Um, and people tend to interchange the words malware and virus uh, fairly frequently. Uh, I think the main kind of definition of a virus would be that um, it's a form of malware which spreads with with some form of uh, human interaction. So it requires maybe a user to to download uh, something or to plug something into their machine, etc., in order to spread. Um, and I guess very much of like a, a human illness virus. Uh, it would require that kind of human to human contact in order to spread. So very kind of similar thing uh, in that in that instance. Uh, and, and probably the most famous virus, if you like, would be uh, Stuxnet. Um, and people may or may not be aware of that, which is a, a very popular malware um, or, or piece of malware, rather, which was um, only prevalent just a few years ago in the Iranian enrichment world and very much a, a government sponsored or, or likely to be a very uh, a government sponsored piece of malware which was uh, distributed with the sole purpose of of taking down uh, Iran's nuclear program um, and that was through some form of human interaction that the kind of machines that uh, this particular piece of malware was designed to infect was um, were, were air gapped for the internet they weren't you know uh, connected to the internet directly for an attacker to go and uh, interface with an attack it required some form of human interaction uh, and, and in this case it was actually a USB stick which was which was plugged into one of the uh, one of the machines inside the enrichment uh, facility um, so it requires that human interaction in order to spread so uh, and then there's other other um, terminologies as well so other types of malware such as a worm uh, and that's similar pretty much similar to a virus it just doesn't need that uh, human interaction to spread a worm will will look for uh, ways in which to propagate itself from from one system to another um, and, and WannaCry was a very good example of that actually um, 
just because of the the exploits it used once it was on your machine it would then um on the one hand it would create a thread and encrypt all of your files uh, and on the other hand it would create a thread and go looking around your network internally and externally to try and infect other machines as well without any uh, interaction on your behalf. So um, that, that that kind of encompasses what a, what a worm element would be. Um, and then people may, may, again, be familiar with the term Trojan. Um, uh, probably harks back to the, the famous Greek Trojan horse story, um, where it's malware, which is these, maybe maybe looks uh, non-malicious on the outside, but actually what it's doing on, under the hood is, is definitely suspicious and malicious. Um, uh, and my favorite, actually, kind of a piece of a Trojan malware um, that I deal with quite frequently is called Banload, um, and it stands for Brazilian uh, Downloader, or, sorry, Brazilian Banking Downloader, um, and it's a banking Trojan, which is... Uh, designed to um, kind of infect your machine and sit in the middle of your internet connections and sniff out your your banking credentials and then it obviously kind of uses that and harnesses uh, it pipes it back to the bad guys for them to to go and use uh, in in their malicious activities but the way in which banload operates is actually pretty interesting under the hood um, but it does it looks like relatively friendly malware on the outside but actually uh, what it's doing is pretty sinister underneath so um, so yeah it kind of encompasses what a trojan is uh, and i guess that the the last um, key one uh, that springs to mind would be ransomware um, and, and again one I cry the most recent uh, famous example of that would be uh, a piece of software which uh, encrypts all of your files and folders and, um, and precious documents to uh, hold you to ransom for, for payment usually uh, there are a few strands of ransomware which don't uh, demand any payment they would actually just uh, maliciously encrypt all of, your, all of your files almost for fun uh, or, or for the destructive element of it um, but still classed as a ransomware nonetheless so. and actually uh, mentioning you mentioned the trojan there the banking trojan and actually you have a really interesting article uh, right up on that on your blog uh, and i'll definitely put that in the show notes yeah thank you um it, it's interesting because the reason why i find it so interesting is, is actually the malware is fairly generic um you know what, what it does isn't actually particularly uh, groundbreaking and it injects into a few processes and kind of sits behind the scenes uh which a lot of malware does but it's the it's the delivery method which these uh portuguese uh threat actors um use um to, to kind of get the machine get the malware onto the machines in the first place but then um it's really analysis aware so it's very difficult to analyze i can't actually run the malware in my environment because it knows it's being analyzed and it knows it's not in a portuguese machine and it knows it hasn't got various bits of uh, software installed um you know and the first thing it does is go looking for that stuff before it infects your device because it's it's targeting a very specific uh, set of users um in, in latin america usually um so to actually get it to play ball and to find out what the network indicators are is pretty difficult when we had to write um a custom kind of decryptor for it to to kind of um you know find out what the the the, the real code was doing under the hood so so yeah pretty interesting stuff am i right in thinking then the the actual WannaCry um malware taking that as an example uh so it would be and initially, it would have been a Trojan because it would have been maybe hiding in a PDF and it's a PDF exploit. Someone had to click on it in an email. And then it turns into a worm through like using the exploit, like the SMB exploit. Yeah, kind of. So I think um, how it actually, they call it patient zero. So what's, you know, who who was patient zero, the first person to be infected with WannaCry? And that's an unknown uh, fact at the moment. 
Um, so nobody knows exactly where it started from. Could, could you actually find who actually was then patient zero? I think it, it's very difficult. Um, and it's more the antivirus companies who get together and who have data on endpoints, maybe, um, that have this kind of data available to them. And when did they see this characteristic of software um, being run on various machines at various times, etc., to kind of piece it together? Exceptionally difficult in this situation where it's spread so fast as well. Um, I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of it, if I'm honest with you. The the original delivery method, there was quite a few conflicting views to begin with, because actually when WannaCry came out, I think literally within 24 hours, there's a, there was another strand of ransomware that came out as well, which was called JAF, uh, J-A-F-F. Um, and that was being delivered via PDF um, so you would you would have an email with a PDF and then uh, that PDF would then um, implement the kind of ransomware elements. Um, and that was a, a completely separate uh, campaign altogether, but definitely confused people because it was quite a large campaign that people thought the WannaCry stuff was being distributed by a P, via PDF when, when in fact there's absolutely no, no evidence it was uh, distributed via email whatsoever. The likelihood is um, it started off via the, the SMB exploit. Um, so we go back to the shadow brokers, which is this mysterious uh, threat actor group who've dumped these or managed to get hold of these NSA hacking tools, um, which which were then used, uh, you know, part of those tools were these uh, SMB exploits, uh, one of which was called Eternal Blue. Um, and that probably was the first um, way of, uh, you know, infecting, infecting patient zero was to, was to knock on the door of their uh, perimeter with this SMB exploit. And once it infects the machine, um, it delivers a payload um, called Double Pulsar, which, which then enable, it kind of opens a bridge, if you like, between the attacker and the, and the victim. And they can pull additional malware, effectively, whatever the bad guy wants to deliver, it can, it can send across the channel. Uh, and in this case, it, it, it sent across WannaCry. Um, you know, and once it's on the machine, it carries with it this kind of outer shell of, okay, on the one hand, I'm going to um, infect your machine and, and uh, encrypt all of your files. And then on the other hand, it's going to, use the same exploits and the same um, method of propagation that it used to infect in the first place to then go and bash around your internal network and also use you as a, a kind of bot to um, you know, infect other people on the on the external network as well. So yeah, super interesting and, and ridiculously powerful. Yeah, highlights, yeah, how inter- how connected and interconnected we actually are, uh, you know, which is a pro and a con. And for these attackers, it's a very kind of yeah it's a very scary attack vector that they can actually exploit yeah yeah it's it, it is scary um you know this this was I, I, and also what's i i get the fact that um you know government states have to have this kind of uh malware under their um in their arsenal to, to fight against the bad guys etc um but the way in which this uh the, the, this eternal blue and this double pulsar uh, and all the other um weird and wonderful terminologies that are that are used uh, for these exploits with the way they kind of came about was was so interesting from you know if you if you worked in the cyber threat intelligence world uh, you know things have been on fire over the last 12 months with the uh, with the shadow brokers data dumps that have been coming out there are you know a, a very clandestine group a lot of people putting them back to either russia or north korea uh, which probably everybody does with everything nowadays to be fair um 
so but the, just the kind of the, the story of how they were actually trying to sell the exploits in the first place um to the highest bidder and didn't really get any bids whatsoever and in the end probably after about a year or so just released them into the wild anyway um which was uh, which was april of this year and then once that malware was released uh, people like me and, and other security researchers and the av companies and all the rest of them were we just kind of spent our time pouring over this malware to find out what it was doing and what it was designed to um you know how it was designed to to be used um and it's it's super interesting um you know they, they it seems like if this is indeed the nsa's uh toolkit um and and this is only a kind of drop in the ocean so we're told as to what the shadow brokers have got access to um you know they have some amazingly powerful um bits of code which they can use and and obviously got some exceptionally talented people working for them that actually write these things in the first place so you mentioned network indicators there and actually analyzing these malware samples and i'm just wondering if you could maybe like give a high level overview of how you actually go about analyzing these samples and and the diagnostic tools Mm -hmm. etc that you use Absolutely. Um, so, and you kind of saw a little bit of it in the video, I guess, with the WannaCry. So, the first thing, there's, there's two ways realistically of analyzing a piece of malware. And the first would be a behavioral analysis. And that would be let the malware run in a controlled environment uh, and find out what it's doing uh, and just kind of observe it and, and, and play with it that way. Um, and so, from, from a behavioral standpoint, I'd be using tools which monitor the processes on the system. Uh, so Process Monitor, which is written by Microsoft, is fantastic. It essentially gives you um, an auditable log of every every piece of a registry and file system activity which is which is going on on the machine, and gives you a whole boatload of information which you can you can kind of go back and have a look and see. Well, when I double click that piece of malware, what did it actually do? What child processes did it spawn? And what command line did it use to to invoke the next piece of uh, code that it pulled, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so that's a really key tool. Um, and actually, one of the other tools I use is uh, is called Process Hacker, um, and that allows me to kind of see processes um, in flight in, in real time, and I can pause them if I like, and then I can go and poke around the memory uh, and see, you know, in, in terms of what it's. It might have unpacked itself in memory. I could get some network indicators out of the strings in the memory um, and things like that. So I can kind of have a little bit of control over the malware and let it flow and and pause it and and run it again at, at, at certain times that I see fit. Um, and there's there's quite a few tools which will help you kind of monitor what's going on on the file and the registry system. Um, uh, a really, a really kind of underrated tool, if you like, that that uh, doesn't really get a lot of press is something called Norabun, uh, and Norabun kind of does a lot of the stuff for you. You kind of hit go, uh, and it will monitor all changes in the registry, and it'll give you some file hashes if a if a piece of malware writes to writes to disk and drops another file, etc. It'll give you you know the location of where that is and the MD5 hash of that, which is super useful for antivirus and and other detection mechanisms as well. Um, and then there's the network side of things, which uh, I definitely shouldn't forget about. So uh, the likes of Wireshark and uh, and there's other protocol passes as well, um, like Microsoft Network Monitor and TCP Dump, etc. Um, so you would you know monitor the network activity of the malware and see where it was calling out to. And I think the key aim uh, of behavioral analysis is something you can if I have if I'm responding to a malicious campaign. I might have just, you know, just a few minutes, five, 10 minutes max in order to find out, 
you know, 75% of the key indicators of that particular sample in order for me to protect the environment against it and, uh, and eradicate the malware from, uh, from any, you know, potential, potentially impacted systems. So um, behavioral analysis is, is super useful uh, and it's actually quite easy, um, you know, once you have the, the right environment set up with, with virtual machines, etc. Um, and then the other side of analysis is static analysis. Uh, some people call it code analysis, but uh, the static analysis would be, you know, you don't necessarily have to let the malware run, um, you know, disassemble it, uh, stick it in uh, st- in tools such as IDA Pro or Ollie Debug or X- X64 uh, Debugger uh, and actually have a look at the assembly under the hood uh, if it's a compiled executable uh, and find out what it was doing, uh, look at the Windows API calls, um, and, and step through the routines. And, and quite often you'll find that malware is is analysis aware. It knows it's being run in a virtual machine or it knows it's being run in a lab. So it will actually react differently in behavioral analysis um, and, and not give you, it might, it might give you certain indicators, but actually if it infected a machine, it would give you completely different indicators altogether. Um, and uh, there's a particular sample which we've dealt with recently called Emotet. Uh, and Emotet is, is quite... Uh, renowned for that kind of activity, so it would give you one one set of results in your lab, but but actually in real life it would it would give a totally different set of results and a a totally different set of uh, servers it would call out to, for example, to um, speak to the bad guys. Yeah, you must have to kind of like take into consideration how they react to virtual machines. And actually, how do you actually go about running these samples? Do you run them like on your local machine, uh, or do you kind of have a different manner of actually running these? Yeah, so I have a MacBook Pro, which has got, um, I'm jacked up with all sorts of virtual machines. I'll have, uh, you know, XP, 7, 10, etc., uh, as well as Linux distros as well. Um, and, and there's all sorts of, you know, when we're looking for particular, particular samples might react differently on different OSs as well. So, you know, I'd, 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 my go-to is always XP. Um, it seems to be, uh, it'll run anything uh, and it will, inf- it will become infected by anything. <laughs> Probably the best and the worst operating system of all time. Um, and uh, and yeah, you know, 32-bit and 64-bit stuff machines, it's always handy to have, uh, you know, different versions as well because some malware will, will operate um, or, or even actually some of your tools will only operate on 32-bit machines, etc. So it's always good to have a kind kind of um a, a variant of, of where you can throw a sample and have a look at it um and, and yeah you know again um like I, as you said there's malware is so can be so analysis aware because virtual machines just give away so many indicators that they are a virtual machine um it, it's not too difficult to to find out um and you know some malware doesn't care or just encrypt anyway um or or do whatever it needs to do and other malware really cares and it it will it will shut down completely and not give you any indicators whatsoever without some hard work so uh, and that's that, that's what makes it super fun to be honest because that's when you know the kind of chase is on the cat and mouse game is on then to to uncover what the bad guys are really wanting to, wanting to hide uh from you which is which is good like is using a macbook pro then kind of a decision a personal choice or is it more about the security that it provides um in my head it was um and so we have like i use sandboxes as well for automated analysis i must mention that as well so and they're super useful um a, a free one which a lot of people use on the internet is cuckoo sandbox um and, and there are uh, many AV suppliers who have their own uh, corporate versions, which kind of build upon the same kind of technology as well. And I, I use a few of them uh, because, again, they get different results. Um, so the automated analysis is definitely something which is super useful. Um, and that can just 
you give you a lot of indicators very quickly without you necessarily having to you know dig deep into the malware uh, but your point on on the os on the macbook um really firstly was to do with speed um the ssd side of things and and uh the capabilities the mac has um is is fantastic um being able to run you know five six seven virtual machines at any one time on multiple screens um at you know fantastic display resolution and all the rest of the benefits that that macs give you is 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 super useful um i think as well there's a it's a good idea to have a separation of operating systems between virtual machine and your host um and it you know it's it's not unheard of for people to run stuff accidentally on their host um uh, and you know have to go and clean themselves up if you like in the background and you know good it, it, it can happen i think there's another risk as well that um there is malware out there which is designed to escape a virtual machine uh, and and can cross the boundary and that's the i would say it's we don't see it uh, a lot certainly not in you know prevalent in the wild because it's if you have an exploit which can um traverse a virtual machine break out of that box and get back onto the host uh, it's worth an awful lot of money to an awful lot of people um so you, you know you're talking kind of nation state uh, kind of activity with that however um you only have to look at the malware which floats around the internet the likes of stuxnet and, and, and all the rest of it which um or, or even wanna cry with these nsa tools that are floating about um it only takes you know one of these samples of malware to be leaked for people to know how it's done and and kind of learn and pivot from that for it to become a major problem so um so being able to you know isolate a little bit between the operating systems is um is an operation security decision yeah and and looking at this old adage question of you know, what actually is the most secure operating system is would would you would would there be a argument to say that maybe unix linux platforms and mac os are more secure than windows or is it just a case that windows unfortunately gets a much harder uh, life because of the fact of how popular it is and uh, it's more bang for the buck essentially you know for for attacker to actually get an exploit for for that platform yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. Um, you, there is malware which targets, targets Mac and there's malware which targets Linux. Um, it's just not as prevalent because Windows is so um, so widely used within corporate organizations and also within home user environments as well. Uh, I think, you know, pretty much everybody I know has got a Mac in some shape or form, whether that's a laptop or desktop or whatever. Um, but I think, you know, when you look at the population in general um, and the corporate environment in general, a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with uh, and the service, the server side of things as well um, is, is definitely Microsoft driven. Um, but yeah, you know, lots of malware affects Linux um, and, and lots of stuff does affect Mac OS as well. But I think uh, probably just a numbers game, uh, the malware authors tend to focus their efforts on, on the they, they can definitely get more bang for their book, if you like, by targeting Windows find you actually have to do any uh, like uh, analysis on mac or linux samples yeah no i've pulled a few apart just out of interest i've not seen them attacked against our environment um which is good but you know from a research perspective um i think the next kind of big thing if i was to is to get a crystal ball out and see where the next you know real kind of threat from malware is going to come from uh and we're already starting to see it where i think it's going to become so much more prevalent is if you can imagine like a wanna cry situation but on a mobile phone um you know if you if you manage to find malware which can propagate through the mobile network um and encrypt devices in the way in which wanna cry did i think you know we'd have a super big problem on our hands um and actually i don't think that's far away if i'm honest with you uh the threat from mobile malware um we see stuff 
Um, I think there was something in the news this morning about some um, adware which has been quite prevalent on, on Google Play. Um, you know, infected boatloads of, of of apps on the Google Play Store, and if you download it, it, it kind of uh, fills you fills you the uh, fill, fills the apps with um, code in the background, which will just kind of automatically click on ads and, and generate revenue for the bad guys. Uh, and that's something which goes on an awful lot, uh, and we see that, and that's that's relatively benign compared to what actually could be happening in that in that environment. If so, if someone really wanted to turn the tables, I think we're on this pivotal point over the next 12, 18 months where that kind of hardware is going to be tapped into uh, and really exploited. No, that is scarily true. Uh, more people now actually do have mobile access and mobile devices as opposed to using a typical laptop or desktop operating system. Yeah, I mean, you can do an awful lot of damage, um, you know, if you, and I guess it depends on who the bad guys are targeting. Um, but uh, yeah, the, in terms of, again, having bang for your book, I think if you wanted to make money from ransomware, which WannaCry Wanna actually didn't make that much money um, looking at the Bitcoin wallets. But if you, if you really wanted to get people to pay for their stuff back, you know, the chances are, I, I don't think my wife and my mother and all the rest of it know how to download their, their photos to the computer, but all their photos and all their precious files, if you like, will definitely be on their mobile phone. So that's really where you're going to hit people where it hurts from an end user perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, people are maybe more, more likely to autocomplete and things like that as being a mobile device. So, you know, it's a very scary attack vector that someone could exploit. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and there's a whole, um, you know, that's if anyone's looking to get into the cybersecurity world, there's a big gap in the market for people who have got uh, the skills and abilities to reverse engineer uh, and, and look from a digital forensics point of view at, um, at smartphone, uh, smartphone malware, smartphone forensics, yeah, real, real good, exciting arm of cybersecurity to be in yeah one thing you actually mentioned just a while back actually was the concept of like reverse engineering and then through static analysis i'm just wondering like what actually then is reverse engineering so i guess uh, the term is about uh pulling something apart to understand its component parts uh to find out exactly you know what it how it operates under the hood um we from, from my point of view i would view reverse engineering uh, to to encompass both behavioral and static analysis, I think it's kind of an umbrella term. I think in the technical world, uh, people, if if you were to talk to um, more technical people about reverse engineering and what it entails, they would say, yeah, it's about sticking a binary in a debugger. Uh, and walking through the machine code almost to, to see exactly what each assembly instruction is doing uh, to understand something in its component part. And and I, you know, get involved in a, in a lot of that. I find it ridiculously fun to pull apart a sample and have a look and see what API calls are being made by the by the malware, which gives you a, a real good indication of what it's doing. Uh, and then look at the kind of routines and also from a threat intelligence perspective. And here's a, a great piece of, uh, again, a great kind of armor, a piece of work which people do, which crosses from malware reverse engineering into threat intelligence is looking at how code is reused between threat actors. Um, so, you know, where the bad guys have one sample and it's out there floating around the internet, um, you know, some of that code might actually be re- be reused a couple of years later or what have you in a, in a completely different environment by completely different threat actors. And you can link the two together from the heuristics from the code underneath. So um, that, that's a super interesting arm, again, of, of cybersecurity to get into the malware research elements. Um, which is uh, very prevalent. I think we saw, in fact, uh, kind of thinking out loud with uh, with Stuxnet uh, and, and all those um, related uh, malware samples, uh, there was some 
uh, tie back to a group called the Lazarus Group, uh, who are a threat actor group, again, linked back to North Korea, which pretty much everything is nowadays. Um, but some of the code that was used and, and the... And the um, the routines that were used under the hood were actually found in a in a very famous uh, malware situation back in 2016, which was called the Bangladesh Bank heist, um, which was very prevalent in the news where um, some malware guys managed to break into the SWIFT uh, platform uh, of the Bangladesh Bank. Um, I think they're called the Bangladesh National Bank. Uh, but they managed to break into their uh, SWIFT environment uh, and, and controlled and, and made some fraudulent payments to the tune of... Uh, um, just under a billion dollars, uh, and got away with a, a fair percentage. Um, I think it, I think there was roughly a hundred million which was unaccounted for, but the rest of it was man- you know, managed to get to get stopped. But uh, even so, a fairly decent payday. Uh, but some of the code that was used in that Bangladesh bank heist, uh, again, when when people look at it from a disassembly level and have a look at those machine instructions, uh, can tie it back to some of the code that was used way back when um, in, in in stuff which is linked to Stuxnet, etc. So you can start to see the state. Uh, you know the, the kind of nation state threat actors that are involved and where they link to so uh, so yeah super interesting yeah absolutely good code is good code and who's to say you know maybe one of these horrible actors actually is using a code just to try and incriminate other people you know reusing code from other people's to to try and get them to take the blame I think there's an awful lot of that that goes on without a doubt um, and it would make sense to I, I only know uh, for my own personal coding skills, how much I copy and paste off Stack Overflow, um, that you know, it makes sense for bad guys to do the same thing. Effectively, you know, if they see something working really well for a piece of malware, they're gonna they're gonna uh, use that themselves without a doubt. And if that puts the blame on somebody else, then that's that's good for them, I guess. And it's actually very interesting to kind of work out, you know, the the reasoning behind why someone actually would carry out such an attack. Uh, you know, you've mentioned their state attacks and typically some people, you know, would do it for the lulls in quotes, you know. So, you know, do you find there's a, a specific trend uh, towards, you know, maybe it's more money incentives, more state incentives or more for just for the sheer fun of it? Yeah, I think, do you know what, there's so much of it about that it would cross all, all of those boundaries. Um, you know, in my world, I definitely see an awful lot which is designed to impact the end user, um, you know, so to from a ransomware perspective, for example. So someone's looking to make a, a few quid off the back of uh, somebody else's downfall. Um, I think there's an awful lot of um, threat actors who are maybe not the nation state level, but very organized indeed, who are operating on a global scale from a from an info stealer point of view so being able to compromise people's credentials and compromise people's banking information uh, and then using that for their own end is uh, is massive um so definitely financials is is a key driver i think in in malware distribution um and i think you're right you know from a political point of view the you know right at the top of the top of the tree we're talking cyber warfare um so it would not surprise me um and this is definitely my own opinion um, but it, it definitely would not surprise me if uh, North Korea's missile tests failing, for example, would be as a result of an outside agency having control over what they're doing on their computer systems. Um, so, you know, m- much like, and I, I kind of keep mentioning it, but much like the kind of Stuxnet situation where, you know, there's a piece of malware within Iran's nuclear um, enrichment facilities um, that's uh, under the control of allegedly the US and the Israelis, then 
um it would it wouldn't surprise me if that if that kind of technology and that kind of infrastructure is as advanced even further um and i guess you know if if it, if things are operating at that level it would make sense for um other outside organizations to be infiltrated into our critical national infrastructure as well um and i think there's a a very big cyber warfare piece which you know certainly people like me have, have absolutely no exposure to whatsoever but i can only kind of sit here and, uh, and and kind of come up with conjecture about but uh yeah really interesting stuff i think day-to-day um financials would definitely be the uh, the key driver for for the usual threat actors that we see um you know and the white hat element of it you know so for the good guys uh, there's, there's a fantastic program called pwn to own um and, and these are super super talented guys who find zero days in um operating systems in in browsers in all sorts of pieces of software um and showcase them in this event called pwn to own every every year uh, and the vendors who go, so the Googles and the Microsofts of the world, etc., uh, they go and they pay for these exploits so they can learn from them, obviously fix them. Um, but the bad guys make, oh, sorry, the good guys rather make an awful lot of money out of it without actually having to do anything malicious. They just showcase the fact that they can find this stuff. And that's a really, really good way of um, of encouraging uh, people to do good things because these guys could, you know, very, very easily use their knowledge and skills to to do something uh, detrimental. But actually, if they can make a boatload of money off uh, off something which they're good at in a legitimate way and actually help the rest of the industry, then that's absolutely fantastic. So. Yeah, so then I suppose it is about, you know, the ethics of the actual person in question, uh, whether you're doing it for a good reason or a nefarious reason. Right, exactly, and we and you know the the hacker community is is, is alive with uh, bug bounty hunters, um, and a lot of organisations operate a bug bounty program. So you know they will pay people to go if you find a bug, rather than go and disclose it on the internet in, in an underground forum somewhere to, to to for malicious purposes. If you disclose it properly, um, and and in, you know let the vendor kind of fix it in good time, and then tell people how you did it, you get the credibility for being a good hacker, but also you get um, the financial reward off the company for fixing it as well. And, and that's a program which is really working uh, very, very well. And it goes right from the basic OWASP web, web, uh, website vulnerability stuff, the cross-site scriptings of the world, et cetera, right through to uh, you know remote code execution exploits. Um, so yeah, it would have been nice if uh, uh, if the shadow brokers had just kind of given stuff to Microsoft and said, hey, do you know what? We've got some exploits here. Go and fix them. How much would you give me for them? Um, but no, instead, they, they unleashed it onto the world instead. And, uh, and you know, now this this super cool malware, which is, is actually pretty easy to set up, is in the hands of the many, uh, which is a frightening prospect. So It'd be very interesting, actually, to find out, like, how long you've actually been in cybersecurity and, and kind of how has it changed uh, since you've been present? And actually, only formally a couple of years. Um, so maybe two, three years uh, from from my own professional experience, uh, I think kind of growing up in in this in the computer science world, you, you follow things which go on, um, uh, and it's kind of like a a more of a lifestyle uh, conversational thing for me. Uh, I think professionally, yeah, only over the last uh, two or three years that I've been directly involved in a cybersecurity role. Um, but even in that in that space of time, as you say, you know, things have developed so much where organizations are investing a lot i think the financial institution world uh, have invested an awful lot of money to protect their intellectual property and their customer data um a lot lot a lot a kind of um 
maybe a lot longer ago than maybe other organizations have. Uh, and I think it does take, unfortunately, some of these incidents like the talk talks of the world or like the wanna cries of the world to, to wake people up a little bit and, and then throw a little bit of investment um, uh, at the industry. But over the last kind of five years or so, that's very been very prevalent. And, you know, I... Um, I get contacted almost weekly by recruiters who are looking for people with skills for uh, malware reverse engineering and uh, cybersecurity incident response, etc. Within uh, within Great Britain, I think there is a, a real big demand for uh, people who can show an interest and show some passion in this world. So. The developer inside of me actually would like to know kind of, you know, the languages and the attack vectors that are kind of being, you know, taken at this time. I noticed on your blog that you you posted a very interesting article about JavaScript and, and how that's being used. And I'm just wondering kind of, yeah, what, what are the, the general attack vectors and languages and, and kind of applications that are being attacked at this time? Yeah. So, I mean, from a uh, from a distribution point of view, we see malware being delivered predominantly via email um, and then... Uh, also from like a web exploit so it could be like an exploit kit on a website or a um or it, you know you go to a website and it encourages you, encourages you to download some malware but predominantly it this stuff is being delivered via um via malicious emails and that could either be it has an attachment on the email or it has a link to download some malware um and actually i find that the the this part of the chain of malware the most interesting um the, the malware themselves are the families and what they do are fairly um generic if you like when you examine them but actually the delivery methods of how the bad guys get them onto your machine in the first place is is something which i'm always impressed by uh because the the weird and wonderful ways in which they try and evade antivirus for example is um is ever changing um, and is uh, and always presents a challenge to the analyst to, to have to reverse engineer their code to find out what they can do. JavaScript is really interesting. I like JavaScript. I've, I've programmed in JavaScript for, for a number of years now um, and just fooled around with it. And I think really what, what kind of did me a lot of good favors was, uh, and probably still does, is that the code that I write is probably really bad. So I spend an awful lot of time Googling other people's code and picking apart what, what they do and how they solved a particular problem or wrote a particular function or whatever and it kind of gives you a good mindset then for when you when you have a piece of code in front of you having to pick your way through it and how to debug somebody else's code which no one likes to do anyway um i would imagine not anyway um and it can be quite challenging to understand somebody else's thought process well the bad guys kind of take it to a new level and hide everything from you um so they will obfuscate all their variables they will split strings across um you know all sorts of arrays and weird and wonderful encryption and encoding mechanisms um to hide the data um and, and it, it is it is amazing it's a, a science on its own so usually what i find uh, and one of the blogs that i did was about um, an emotet uh, downloader and an, and an emotet dropper so the emotet malware is a, is a bank intrusion and it's fairly generic and it's you know a little bit boring to talk about what actually is was, was interesting for me at that time is um if you if you click the link in the email it would pull down a javascript file uh, and it would expect the user to double click that javascript file um and then would obviously execute on the machine and depending on which version you had so one version of this javascript file would uh, reach out to the internet and, and pull down a binary which would be the malware and would then run it so it would you know go to a particular website download it save it to your temp directory or wherever uh, and then execute the the, the exe uh, under the hood so just by you know double clicking the javascript you're infected with the with the binary with the malware itself um, and then the other side uh, the other sample which we had a look at was um, 
a JavaScript file which actually had the code, uh, the the bytes for uh, the malicious executable built in, and it would drop it to the system. Um, so that was the malware in itself. But to get to to uncover, um, you know, all of the the indicators from the sample. Um, I really had to do do a bit of get my JavaScript hat back on and, and kind of work out how they were hiding uh, all of this information from me, from me. Um, and one of one of the samples which I found recently which was pretty interesting was it, all of the malicious code within the JavaScript was actually all commented out. Um, so actually, when you, when a maybe a, an AV engine or a or even a sandbox would have a look at this code, they wouldn't actually see anything particularly malicious because it didn't seem to actually be doing anything. Um, but actually, what it was doing at the, at runtime was passing itself as a file uh, and then using like a regex replacement to you know extract everything between the comments uh, and then you know uh, evaluating everything in between those uh, in between those comment strings um, and, and which would obviously be the malicious code as well and then coupled in that all of that code was obfuscated uh, as well so like you'd have to decrypt it if you wanted to you know pick your way through it without actually having to run it so um, so super interesting um, what I tend to find with JavaScript a lot of the time is that if you just uh, and a lot of people just do this anyway, which is great, is is you don't have to necessarily reverse engineer every line of code. You could just double click it yourself in your lab environment and let it run and see what happens uh, and use all of the behavioral analysis tools. Um, what I tend to find is there's an awful lot of fallback mechanisms built in. So like if it can't reach the first website um, and, and, da- and make its download, if it gets anything other than a 200 response, it might have a fallback URL. Uh, and in fact, with the Emotet downloaders, I think there was four or five fallback URLs. So those were all different um, server in, uh, or pieces of information about the bad guys uh, infrastructure that would be um, you know, super necessary to block against in a corporate environment. Uh, but if you didn't pick your way through the code and decode it yourself, you wouldn't necessarily find that information out. So uh, one of the reasons why the, the reverse engineering angle is so important. So, um, But yeah, JavaScript, I think, is definitely very well used uh, by the bad guys, probably because it's so powerful um, and will execute on pretty much any machine uh, if you let it uh, from a windows point of view um, you know being having having access to active x objects etc just gives you a whole host of file system capabilities that um, most other languages don't necessarily give you with, with such simple uh, syntax to use so how how do you actually stay current uh, in this kind of industry uh, and also like how do you start off from a base uh, i know it's on your website that you have high regard for the the sans certificates and things like that and i'm i'm yeah i'm just wondering kind of like how you how you started off and progress Absolutely. SANS is amazing. Uh, and it's something, uh, SANS, a SANS course is something I kind of dreamed about doing for uh, the past 10 years. And I've been very fortunate enough to have done two of them relatively recently. Um, and for me, they're, they're kind of the pinnacle of, of cybersecurity training. Um, and the, the two courses that I did, I did the, the SANS 504, which is all about uh, you, you literally learn about hacker exploits and the tools that they use to to, to uh, attack your environment. And then also you learn some defensive uh, mechanisms as well that you can employ um, and how to manage those cyber incidents when they when they come about. Um, and, and it's just an amazing course, so broad uh, and so uh, very technical, very hands-on, uh, lots of labs in there and all the rest of it. Um, and then the second SANS course I did was the, uh, the 4610, so the Forensic 610 course. 
And Lenny Zeltzer, who teaches the course, is is kind of like a, a godlike figure in the malware world, who kind of the overlord who sits there and um, sees all these things going on and gets to gets to speak about this the, these things on a on a weekly basis with uh, students all around the world. But you you get a whole host of malware to play with in his lab, and uh, you get loads of tools and and, and effectively a, 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 an amazing set of walkthroughs of how to analyze malware, the tools and the challenges that you go through, and different techniques that you have to use to 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 really kind of pick apart what um what the software is doing um but sans is is amazing uh it's pretty expensive for for the the average user from a corporate environment people can get uh, sponsored through it from a uh, from employees quite re- quite readily um and there's a whole range of courses uh from you know right from an introductory level straight through to the seven series courses which are you know to do with advanced exploit writing and um advanced web pen testing etc um from my side of things uh, i think there's so much it's definitely worth mentioning that there's so many free resources as well or, or nearly free resources on the internet that can get people interested in this world uh, and in fact one of the uh, tools or uh, one of my bibles if you like is a book called practical malware analysis and, and most malware people that this is their bible and, and something which is probably which which got them into malware in the first place but practical malware analysis is is um a uh, you know the encyclopedia of how to analyze malware behaviorally and statically as well uh with with lots of labs and exercises along the way and it's it's a few years old now but you know completely relevant still to the to the tools and techniques that people use um and yeah so it's there's, there's so much stuff i mean you have to look on uh, the likes of lynda.com and um and, and all of the the kind of mooc websites as well so the edexes and the course eras of the world um have some fantastic cyber security courses and in fact i did one with um I think it was Coursera actually, um, which was an introduction to cybersecurity, and this was a few years ago. Um, and I thought, okay, well, this sounds good. And actually, when I read the, um, uh, the 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 kind of synopsis of each of the courses, there's a specialization course, um, which which if you do, I think four or five different courses together, gives you this specialization certificate, which is looks a bit more professional to talk about. Um, and it covers stuff like you know you're writing software to um, um, carry out buffer overflows and, and things like that as well as looking at the human element and how to train people properly and uh, and then looking at the the regulatory and the legal side of things and and then also looking at the the crypto and you know a whole kind of breadth of uh, of courseware and i think each course was about 50 quid so you know so very accessible for for people and and these are taught by uh, some of the top universities in the us so um loads of loads of places that people can really um, you know, tap resources and get into the get into the field if they haven't already. Oh, I'll definitely put those in the show notes. And yeah, Colin, thank you so much again, man, for coming on the show. Uh, it's been really interesting, kind of yeah, dipping our toe in this the cybersecurity waters. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating. My pleasure. It's been great to speak to you, and thank you for giving me the uh, the opportunity to come and uh, speak to you, audience. It's been another great episode, and we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at 3devsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number 3, Devs and a Maybe.